new beginning. All right. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside, as always, Dr. Joshua Black. Dr. Black, how are you today? I'm a little tired today, Sean. I got to tell you. I got I don't know what it was. I think because uh, maybe you watched it last night. <laughs> yeah, you want to tell me? Let's talk about it. <laughs> no, let's not. Um, so yeah, I had sporadic sleep. Um, so, anyways, I'm really excited to be on this podcast, and then uh, probably have a nap right after. Did you dream about the clown in it? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't remember much of my dreams actually. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh... I'm not into horror movies, and that was okay. It wasn't bad. But uh, yeah, it definitely uh, led to a, a weird night. Uh, I also woke up a little bit groggy. But hey, thank goodness for coffee. Uh, gets us going in the morning, gets me going, and gets me started on my day. Today is another great day because we get to talk to an individual who has his own grief story. And let's get right into it. So his name is Dave Marteau. And Dave is a mental health professional and a writer who has worked for 30 years with and for those close to death in hospital, rehab, prison, and hospice setting. Between 2000 and 2012, he was a clinical drug advisor to the UK government, and more recently, he has worked for the European Union and the United Nations. Dave's sister Elizabeth took her own life at 31, and his son Jack was killed crossing the road at 21, hit by a speeding driver. Dave is the author of The English Book of the Dead, uh, which can be found at www.englishbookofthedead.com. And it is a grief, excuse me, it is a personal and scientific exploration of mortality. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so, Dave, where are you calling from today? I'm calling from a town called Bournemouth. It's on the south coast of England in Europe. We're just about still in Europe. We've got a Brexit thing going on here, but I won't bore you with that. <laughs> I don't think it's boring at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's driving us crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's one of those things where we we do hear about what's going on in England. Uh, I still have family yeah. in England, so um, I definitely oh, cool. yeah, I feel a little bit. Uh, alike with you guys over there and i recently actually spoke to some gentlemen who came uh to visit some family that i have and they're from england and we had a conversation about brexit and all this and it's very similar to actually what we're faced here in canada slash united states in terms of uh uh uh, political strife let's call it that a lot of uh, turmoil Yeah. yeah yeah we've got that going on but I'm hoping to uh, to go around or above that, really, because our conversation today is going to be on a more profound level than political wranglings. You know, we're going to talk about life and death, essentially. Ooh, I like that. I love it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want to actually begin by talking about your life. Yeah. And you spent 30 years in the same field. And I think that's remarkable. What got you to want to be involved with people at uh, near death? Well, um, I was sort of at a crossroads, really. I'd been working in computers. Um, this is back in the 1980s. And my wife, Debbie, and I had been traveling. And we came back uh, to Europe uh, from, from Asia. And we just felt like our lives, we didn't really want to recommit to doing the same sort of boring office stuff. And eventually, um, I sort of, I'd always been interested in psychology, so I, I drifted into psychiatry, stroke, mental health, and um, 
There was a sort of personal unconscious reason as well, because my sister, who took her own life, Elizabeth, uh, had been quite unwell during my formative years with mental health problems. And I think in a way, I was almost trying to save her or I was trying to work out the riddle of what was what was the matter with Elizabeth. And so, as well as for conscious reasons, wanting to do something that was a bit more interesting than standard office work, I was also kind of trying to work out a family dilemma. Um, and unfortunately, Elizabeth took her own life when I was just one year, maybe a little more into the work. I think I was in my second year, just still training. And so, um, so it's really underlined for me that I was in the right area as well as being, you know, desperately unhappy for my sister. I was feeling like perhaps I was doing something positive too. So I guess that saw me through. Wow. So your sister's life ended right when yours was beginning in the sense of that new field. Did she always have the mental health yeah. issues or was it something that just happened after maybe a traumatic event of some sort? No, I think it, it was almost throughout her entire life. I remember when I was seven and she was nine or ten, we shared a bedroom together and she would uh, obsessively count the number of items in the bedroom each night before she could go to sleep. And we call that OCD now. But um, at the time, I just thought it was just something she did. But looking back, I, I could see that, that her mind was racing or compelling her to do things that most kids wouldn't do. So I think the, the warning signs were there and then it developed into further problems, eating disorders and then ultimately a breakdown. So uh, and a sequence of breakdowns to the point where she was she just had enough. She turned 31. And she just um, she just couldn't take it anymore. So she said to um, I've got four sisters. She said to the sister to whom she's closest, Teresa. She said, um, "You won't see me alive again." And Teresa said, "Oh, don't be so stupid." You know, she, she sort of thought she was half playing with her, and um, but. They parted on a railway station and in London and Elizabeth got on the train, Teresa walked off and she was right. Uh, we never saw her again. She went missing and she jumped from a cliff on the south coast here of England. Wow, that's, that's heartbreaking to, to hear that and, and to not be able to help, you know? That's, uh, that's tough. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Sean. It's, it's, it's the powerlessness. You couldn't help. And uh, in fact, she had asked if she could stay with me, I think, I think just a few months before. But um, to be honest, she was so crazy and just not sleeping. And I just thought, oh, I've got a new baby in the house. I've just started this course. I don't know. You know, I thought, no, no, it wouldn't be a good thing. I knew it would end in disaster, you know. Um, because brothers and sisters fight anyway in, in a funny kind of way. You know, I would have thought it, the wheels would have come off if she had stayed with us. So I said no. And then, of course, she died. And I kept feeling terrible about that and had to resolve it in my mind. It took, it took me about 10 years to come to the conclusion that actually, if she had stayed with me, she would have ended her own life anyway because I couldn't make her happy. I couldn't make her 
demons go away, you know? Right. Yeah, I feel like uh, that's it's one of the things people struggle with when they lose someone like that in that setting, like someone who takes their own life. You know, mm. the friends, friends and family around them kind of have that question in their head, like, is what could we have done? You know, we didn't necessarily Absolutely. see the signs. Um, and then also, obviously, like you talked about, a little bit of guilt oh, will set lot. in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got it. So, um, but there was also a part of me, I'd say 25% of me, that was happy for Elizabeth. That was happy she didn't have to suffer anymore. Because she'd had loads of hospital admissions, you know, every psychiatrist that she saw gave her some new horrible drug. You know, it was it was torture for her, and and yet suddenly it was gone. But you know, to to move it on to the subject of the podcast, I I had dreams about Elizabeth that I can't recall now, and and I stopped dreaming about Elizabeth quite a number of years ago. But I dreamt about her very recently, twice, very recently. Um, and my wife, Debbie's just received a diagnosis of a sort of early form cancer. And so we're kind of shocked a little and, and sort of adjusting to that. And Elizabeth came to me in a dream twice. And, uh, and it was definitely a very vivid one because her whole form, her whole manner, her tone of her voice was completely Elizabeth, you know, even though I haven't seen her for 33 years. Um, and and she, in my own mind, you know, I thought, why should I dream about Elizabeth now? What, my, in my own mind, my sister had come to me to, to, um, to give some, as, as a show of strength, you know, to give some support to me and Debbie. That's what I believe, because she really liked Debbie. That's interesting. And what was the dream? Did you, can you share it? Well, the, the dream was very, very simple and very short, and it was more a case of presence rather than, um, I would say, plot. Do you know? I was, I was at home. At least I felt like I was at home. And, um, and my son Jack and Elizabeth were in the room with me. I didn't see them come in. They were just, they just arrived. They just materialized. And essentially what they were telling me was, you'll be okay. It'll be okay. It was unspoken, but that was the message that I felt was being communicated. Now, there are all sorts of arguments, and I respect those, that say, well, this is just my unconscious offering me reassurance and doing that through the story of of my dead relatives i can i can see that you know that's perfectly feasible explanation whether it is the true explanation or not i can never know and i'm happy not knowing because um i've spent a lot of my lifetime not knowing things and you get kind of used to mystery you get to the point where mystery is okay you know there's a sort of sort of comfort in mystery yeah, there, and there's a lot of mystery around dreams and, and grief dreams, right? And it's one of those things, you know, you mentioned that the um, kind of the, the main essence of her was in the dream, but not necessarily the finer details. And isn't that funny as a general statement in life, 
we go through our daily life, it seems like we're more concerned with the details and less concerned with the why and the overarching reason why we're even doing what we're doing. But the dream world flipped it on the reverse and said, well, here's the most important thing, which is the feeling of the the person's there, maybe words words they say, maybe the look in their eye. And and oh yes, we hear that so much that some of these grief dreams, like even my own grief dream, I saw my uncle, mm-hmm. didn't know, didn't really recognize anything around, but I saw it in his eyes and I saw him smile, and that gave me enough. And I think there's something to that. There's some science behind that. We just obviously there's mystery behind it, but it's something that helps us. And it came to you in a time that you needed that help, and and that's that's yeah. the beauty of of it all of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're absolutely right. I like that that we're we're fixated on detail and facts, aren't we? Yeah. Information and in fact just one look carries all the information or meaning mm. that can never be communicated otherwise, I think. Yeah. No, and I like too. You said you're you're open to the mystery and we just had a guest on I forget her name, but she did documentary on Dreams of yeah. the Dead. And she mentioned that she was having this conflict in her mind too. And like, are these visitations? Is it just the mind? And finally she just had this Mm. dream where her, I believe it was her sister. No, her mother, mother, her mother said, you know, just take it, take it as a gift. And that was it. Like, so she realized these dreams are a gift and to not worry about or wonder so hard about the mystery because you're losing the gift that is, is the presence. Yeah. Yeah. The mother's a wise woman. (laughs) I'll move forward now um, because in 2009, in December, our son Jack was killed, as you mentioned at the start of the program. He was knocked down and killed crossing the road in Sicily, in Italy. And um, I'll just take a breath there. Yeah, even though it's 10 years, it's just, you know, when you say the words and hear the words, it sort of creates a reverberation through you. But those first few months in particular and really the first two or three years we were in the wilderness Debbie and I were just uh, in 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 such a strange land of grief and there are a couple of things to do with grief dreams I think that are really important to say at this point first of all is you're existing you probably know this yourselves when when you've really lost someone you're so close to you suddenly exist at a slightly different frequency, is the best way I can put it. Mm. Is the world has changed its pitch. It's, it's, you're, you're, if anything, you're a, a, a more elevated level, elevated pitch. You're living, it's almost as if your feet are slightly off the ground. And maybe through the pain and certainly through the reality of what's happened is so, you know, you don't live through many massive realities. Uh, I think for you guys in your generation, maybe 9-11 might have been one of those massive realities. I, I'm guessing. I don't know. But, you know, when things suddenly burst through the everyday and you, you're in a different place all of a sudden, a completely different place. And we had no dreams about Jack, Debbie and I for the first few weeks or even months. And listening to your podcast, I found that's quite that's not unusual. That's so, isn't it? It's you tend to be tend to be a while before people have these dreams. Yeah, that's true. And sometimes it takes years. Right, right. 
Well, fortunately, Debbie's very conscientious at writing things down. I'm not. But she kept a, a sort of diary, a grief diary after Jack died. And it's only looking back, you think, well, actually, this, this is a really remarkable story. Um, because Jack died on the 5th of December. And in the following April, so we're talking about four months on, five months on, Debbie had her first dream about Jack. Um, didn't you, Deb? It was very vivid. And they embraced, and Debbie said, I miss you, Jack. And Jack said, I miss you too, Deb. Because uh, he used to call us by our first names, oh. rather than <laughs> mum and dad. And, <laughs> and so, it was, so, it's, so it's very typically Jack to say something like that. And he's a very emotional guy. But also, Deb said that she could smell him, that it, he, it was Jack, not just his embrace, his touch, his look. It was the actual odour of Jack that she had in the dream. And, you know, she'd never dreamt. I've never dreamt of any smells before. So that was, uh, I think, quite a significant thing. The second thing that was significant, and we'd forgotten this until we, we looked back over the notes, is that um, Jack's auntie, whose name is Denny, and she was a sort of super aunt to Jack, really. She spent so much of her time. She because she can't have kids of her own. She spent an enormous amount of, of Jack's childhood with him. She had a dream, her first dream about Jack, that same night on the 20th of April. So not only had Jack come through in a way to Deb, he, he'd also come through to Denny that same night, although the two sisters were completely unaware that the, until the following day when they had a conversation that either of them... Um, had dreamt of just dreamt of Jack that night, so it's a really quite a remarkable thing, I think, in retrospect. Yeah, when you look at how rare these dreams can be, for two people to have them on the same night is remarkable. And so, what was that conversation like? <laughs> I've, I've been looking into this, yeah, and I found that there there's a lot of um, documentary evidence about twins having the same dream on the same night even if they might be separated by hundreds of miles they will quite often have identical dreams on a given night and uh there's you know the band the Bee Gees? Uh, oh yeah 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 big, you know saturday night fever i like <laughs> the Bee Gees. anyway <laughs> who doesn't and uh the, the, the morris and robin uh, uh, Gib from the Bee Gees because they're, they're all brothers, aren't they? But Morris right, and Robin yeah. are twins, and Morris and Robin would have the same dreams on the same night, and Morris and Robin would dream up the same melodies. So they'd go into the studio and say, "I've got a great tune," and the other guy would play it and say, "Well, that's, that's my tune." He said, "Well, I dreamt it last night." <laughs> so, uh, wow. so this is, in other words, this is communication that can happen. When, when we're asleep that transmit across across minds and across distances and I think that's what happened when Jack first came through um, to Debbie and to her sister. Yeah it's, it's curious about those situations uh, that's another mystery right like that collective consciousness almost like why is it that yeah. and I've heard reports of that too like twins kind of thinking about certain things together or sharing thoughts or dreams and it, it, yeah. I feel like it, it'll transcend into family as well. Whereas like 
maybe some of those precogs are precognition dreams are related to that as well. Like, how is this possible? And I think like the more work that, uh, you know, scientists like Joshua Black get into it and find out a little bit more about how the brain works and how dreams work and especially grief dreams, I think we'll get answers. But right now we're kind of like, wow, this is like magic. Yeah, well, it is a form of magic. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's real magic. Um, my first dream about Jack came about about a month after Debbie. So we're, I'm five months into, into bereavement. And it was, it was very specific. Jack and I met in a, in a sort of non-place. It was, it was kind of misty and light. Hmm. And, and there was just me and him in this. It wasn't even a room, and it wasn't really a geographical location. We were just we were just together in this space, and Jack was a very um, up guy, you know. Usually delighted to see a very broad smile, you know, very bright smile, and um, yeah, enjoyed life. But this, but he's flat in the dream, and uh, he's, he's he's going through things a bit. And he says to me, um, it, it would help me if you were to wear one or two of my clothes each day. Mm. So I said, well, okay, Jack, okay. And the dream ended soon after that. So I got up the next day and I put on his T-shirt and I put on a pair of his socks, you know, his stockings. And the next day after that, I put on a jacket of Jack's or he'd even put on his underpants, you know, stuff that uh, you know is in his bedroom we don't know what to do with and I did that for about six months every day I'd wear at least one item you know and I thought well looking, thinking back you know if I had a dream where somebody said to me it would help if you walk in a, with a walking stick you know for a week there's no way I'd do that you know I just dismiss <laughs> it as a stupid dream <laughs> but but I woke up and I was convinced, no, you know, there was no doubt in my mind, this is going to help Jack, you know, it's, it's going to help me, it's going to help Jack, I'm going to do, just do this. So I didn't even think it was, it was at all strange or that it might be that I cooked the whole thing up in my mind. I was convinced that, um, that Jack had asked me and so I'd do it, you know. Wow. Yeah, as I was going to say, it was, it's very interesting in these dreams how when the deceased suggests some things to do uh-huh. a lot of people just do them right you're not really questioning them i i had a yeah. i read a dream of someone bought an engagement ring that the person was going to buy but told her to yeah. buy it because he wasn't going to be around anymore and so she went out and bought the ring and it's just like <laughs> was even a question in her, in her mind yeah and so even with this like i'm glad you took that to heart and you did that because i think there must have been a a reason, right? To not only just do it, right? But to yeah. help with your grief in some way. Yeah, it was doing me a favor too, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do with every favor you can get, don't well, you, when, you, when you're in deep grief. Anything, yeah. you know, like a, like a drowning guy reaching out for any inflatable or <laughs> bit of flotsam, just, yeah, just grab for anything. But it it didn't feel like a desperate act. It felt like, just a positive act to me yeah that's beautiful what was uh your favorite article of clothing to wear of his oh that's a good question um yeah yeah i guess uh 
I got I got a, I got a Dr Pepper T-shirt of his, and and uh, Jack's uh, Jack's bigger than me in a six foot. He's a big guy, and and it, and it swims on me a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I tend to wear it like a pajama top now, you know, rather than wear it out. But uh, yeah, I love that. I feel very close to Jack. And also, there's a a, a red and black kind of check shirt of his i still wear it now uh that does fit me and uh I, yeah he used to wear that a lot too so those two those two are my number one too i knew jack was dead you know i didn't have any doubt about that i when my sister elizabeth died i sometimes would see her in the street but people report this a lot it's just you know somebody with dark hair walks past you and just for a split second you think oh it's elizabeth and of course it isn't, but that's such a painful realization when you, you, you see that your mind has played tricks on you that um, I I just wasn't prepared to even allow that thought after Jack died. So immediately I surrendered myself totally to the idea that Jack had gone, even though you know it was so shocking. I I was fully prepared just to to let go of any hope. And and so it was just a matter of living with the pain, really. And any sort of connection with Jack would lighten that pain sometimes. To the point we we had videos of Jack taken just two or three days before he died in Sicily by a girl he knew. And we would watch these. I find them too painful to watch now. But at the time, in the early days, it worked the other way around. And they were very comforting. There was, yeah, it was very comforting. Um, I had a... I had, the second dream I had about Jack, the second dream I had of Jack, I'm not too sure what preposition to use here. The second dream I had with Jack, <laughs> uh, he was um, was altogether low tapia. He was really his old self. And um, he just he was just walking towards me and I was walking towards him. I think it was outdoors. Pretty sure it was outdoors. And we just walked towards each other, but we didn't bother talking. We just carried on walking until until we were touching each other, you know, face to face, and we just embraced. And at that point, we slowly began to rotate. And then our arms began to sort of disappear into each other's forms, and we turned into just this single entity, really. I stopped, stopped being just me, and Jack just stopped being him, and we just became one, and it was, it was just wonderful. And... Um, yeah, that was that was quite a healing dream, I suppose, in a way. I mean, I, you know, you're a long time healing, but it was a it was a good dream. Yeah, see, it, it's an interesting one because you don't normally see stuff like that where you guys the two merge into one. So I'm guessing you were healing from because you're wearing the clothes and watching the videos and grieving and mourning. Yeah. And, this must have been a. Did this symbolize something in the sense of how you're grieving? In any way? Um, it, yes, it would in a way because at the time I was quite taken with um, with um, what used to be called monism, which is the idea that um, really any differences between each ourselves is is fairly imaginary or an illusion. In fact. Mm. You know, if we if we hate somebody, in the end we're hating ourselves because we're all pretty well one people, and 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 we're all we're all 
we're all just carbon, basically. We're all, yeah. we're all just a bunch of molecules from the same universe, the same event, really, we're all created mm. in the same sort of star flashes. So really, we're all just going back to that that point of creation. We, we, we belong together, which is why I believe that, for instance, uh, you know, identical twins can have the same dream, even though they're hundreds of miles apart. I think in, in many respects, they still are the same person or, this, you know, that same initial molecule. Um, so I think we, we all are a bit. <clears throat> this comes back to the Big Bang and the idea of singularity, you know, everything started at this tiny point. It was ultimately small and had ultimate energy. So um, I think that's where we belong, in the singularity. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful thought, and the dream kind of reflects that. It's if you look at life like that, me and Joshua, we're essentially, you know, similar beings, you know, we're made up of the same things. There's very similar ideas and whether it's, you know, you and me, Dave, or whoever it is, you know, plants and trees, yeah. you have, if you can build a connection and understand the connection, you know, you, your life takes a di different perspective almost because then you're not dipping into the negative too much. You don't feel alone. You don't feel like you're, yeah you against the world rather than well it's all me it's all, all all around me and then it also seemed to lighten up those stresses of life those anxieties and those hardships and look at this beautiful dream again we talk about you know the hard hard reality of situations but there's a line and you cr you end up crossing that line when it comes down to things in our life that are momentous whether it's the birth yeah. of a child whether it's the death whether it's something significant to you people dying or, or you know maybe i've graduated it from a child to an adulthood these are all pivotal moments where you know reflection is is important if not vital in those situations and really they're the upper echelon type of values and ideas and and topics in life now here's your you and your son kind of connecting and merging and, and really yeah. sharing that universal truth that that you share which is you know that's just beautiful yeah it's a good one sean yeah i i, I was very uh, sort of elated for a while after the dream i mean I'm, i you know you, you have to watch yourself with grief because you can you can feel good and feel like, oh yeah i've got i've got the ship steadied now you know I'm, I'm, I'm on an even keel and then suddenly you can plummet again and we did a fair bit of plummeting didn't we deb over over the next few years even now we've got to be careful you know, we're nearly 10 years on, but you can't take your emotional well-being for granted. You can't take your stability for granted, you know, Sean. It's it's, uh, it's something you've got to keep working on um, because it's it's easy to slip back and slip down. And was Jack your only son or child? Yeah. Yeah, Jack's my only son. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but... We have we have a daughter Rosie who was very close to Jack. They, they, there wasn't much difference in age, you know. There was only a couple of years between them, and um, and Rosie was very devastated. Um, and she um, she had a very bad nightmare of Jack in the early days, where he was basically physically in a you know, in a deteriorating state, I think, in a very bad way. So she had a, a really bad dream. And it took, she was, she was so bereft that she couldn't return to the family home. I mean, in the end, we left that home um, because 
Rosie said, I, I just I just can't go there. So we do have to meet her on um, on neutral territory around her aunties, Auntie Denny I've mentioned earlier, you know. Oh, we just see her in a cafe somewhere. And she was so unhappy. But she's married now. She's living in Portugal. She's just had a baby daughter. So she's a different different woman now. She's 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 ridden through it and um and she's really at peace with her life. She's 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 happy. It's great to see. Well it's amazing for you to see too, because as parents, not only did you lose your son and you're grieving yourself, but also your own child is also mourning. Mm. And like how do you deal with that? Right? Like it's such a hard position for parents to be in after a loss of a child. And so like how did you guys find a way through it like ride the ride the way like how do you guys do it is my question well it wasn't yeah it's not easy it's a good question you um you fight a bit because you're all in so much pain but you can't make each other feel better this is this is this is one of the cruel truths about about grief shared by loved ones is normally if if your loved one's got a problem say they're feeling low or they hate their job or they're unwell if you know, you say, don't worry about that. Look, I'll make you a nice cup of tea, you know, and you, know, and you put the world right, you know. But you can't do that with grief. You see, you see your daughter in agony, you're thinking, well, I haven't got the first idea how to make you feel better. <laughs> I tried. I said to Rosie, look, I lost my sister when she took her own life. So I know what it's like to lose a sibling. And um, here I am now. 24 years on and I can mention her without without pain and I'm thinking what a stupid thing. oh sorry that's a really stupid thing to say that's all right I, I said to myself that that's a very stupid thing to say Dave because Rosie's I mean she's only 24 anyway so I'm saying you, it's going to take you to what it's going to take the entire length of your current life to feel better so that wasn't comforting at all so we just couldn't do it we just had to wait until until she'd worked out her own way of carrying that she said oh people told me that i've just gotta i've just gotta carry the burden she goes but why should i you know why should i carry this burden i thought well that's a good question i haven't got the answer to that either you know but fortunately she did she did prevail she did prevail that's amazing and was it was the type of death a serious thing for you guys because he was basically killed by a speeding driver, which is a lot different yeah. what happened with your sister, right? Who was in a lot of pain. Yeah. And so like, he had a yeah. lot going for him in his life. Like, was that a, a huge obstacle to basically cross because yeah. of the nature of the death? Yeah. I think it makes some difference because as I said earlier, Sean, with my sister, 25% of me was happy for her. With Jack, zero percent of me was happy for him, you know, because mm-hmm. he loved life and he had he had quite a good thing going, you know. He um he was going to live probably in South America. He spoke really good Spanish and he loved he loved the life there, and uh, he was he, he had loads of loads of plans. He was a good writer. He was going to be a journalist, you know. He's I, I never heard him complain about about life, really. You know, he said he didn't like responsibility a lot. Well, who does? But um, he was looking forward to. Um, he did say he had nothing to rebel against us with us. You know, we, we were we were pretty easy parents, really. 
We hardly used to. <laughs> but he was a good kid. You didn't have to tell him off very much. He didn't like being in trouble, so he sort of disciplined himself, really. Uh, yeah, he's a good kid. And and so, just to be taken away, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't hate the driver because in Italy, you have to hate the culture. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a speeding culture. I love Italy. It's a beautiful country. The food's fabulous. The people have very big hearts, but they drive like maniacs. They really do. The roads are very dangerous there. And um, it's, it's in particularly in the south of Italy. Um, I would say if you're going on a fly drive holiday, don't go to the south of Italy. It's, it's really crazy. <laughs> and, yeah, it's true. And so really it wasn't the individual that killed Jack. It was it was the culture. It was this machismo culture about drinking loads of strong coffee and driving like maniacs. And they do, you know. I I just won't drive in Italy. I just won't do it. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing you bring up because that's like, how do you come to terms with a force or a culture or a system? not necessarily an individual that you can see in their eyes and look at them and say, yeah, yeah, they took my son's life, but something else external, because, you know, like mm. we said, in the end, that's, we're the same. That's us. They're them. We're, we're, they're us. We're we are done. them. Yeah. And it's a difficult, yeah. difficult thing. Like, you know, for instance, you know, our friend Darwin Davis father was murdered. And, ah. you know, all these situations, you know, or we have another, we had another guest on their son died on a cruise ship, didn't get the medical resources he need and ended up dying when he could have been saved over something else. And that's a tough mm. one. And I, I, I really have a lot of sympathy and empathy for parents who go through, well, any, any type of death, but when there's a faceless type of force, that's, that's intense. That's intense. Mm. The, um, Last week, I, I went to a um, city called Birmingham here in the UK to give a talk to parents who'd been bereaved by either by suicide or by uh, drug overdose. And uh, let me tell you, that's one unhappy room. Mm. And uh, I, um, I presented them with a lot of information because that's the sort of person I am. I'm... As we spoke earlier, I guess I'm a Westerner, you know, I'm big on detail and facts. So I presented them with the facts about suicide and, you know, because there's, there's certain realities that, that transcend actually individual, individual disturbance. For instance, as a rule of thumb, the further you are from the equator, the more likely you are to take your own life. Mm. And uh, I, I know, for instance, there's quite a large problem in the north of Canada with young male suicide probably found if a lot of those guys moved to Montreal some of them wouldn't, wouldn't have taken their own lives I don't know but there's uh, also a large problem in the UK Canada's got it too and the USA definitely a large drug problem and again you know the further you are from the equator the more likely you are to develop some sort of dangerous addiction and in the UK we're, we're sort of there are out of 184 countries that submit data, we're we're 13th for drug death. We're really bad. Mm. And so when somebody has a drug overdose, everybody says, "Well, who sold them the drugs?" You know, and uh, where did they get the drugs? And I was going to think, "Well, yeah, okay, that's one line of inquiry. You've got to follow that up. But you've also got to say, honestly, in our culture, it's not very unusual at all." 
for young people to take drugs in quite large quantity and sooner or later one of them's going to make a mistake or going to be unlucky so i guess that's another example of culture you know that um that something's going to take us away in the in the psyche of the nation or in the habit of the nation the behavior of the nation i was just going to say how i look at that is you know my brain automatically kind of goes back to well it's not the individual it's the system and especially like yeah. in, like you mentioned canada you know when you when you talk about some of the northern provinces where it's isolated or small towns and drugs yeah. are more pre- prevalent and there's there's kind of like a hopelessness almost going on you know yeah. these are for me these are the real causes kind of like it's a problem of the soul and yeah that's right so if if yeah, we don't support right. those people in our communities our young people in those communities and give them the tools to how to resolve these issues and, and come to terms with them whether whatever struggles are going on in their lives lives you know, they're going to try to find answers and they're going to go to places like drugs or whatever and, and try to get those that relief or ease of suffering mm. or something, you know, even if it's recreational, to be honest. Yeah. Well, even to the uh, the medications that the doctors prescribe now, right? Like they're, like they're highly addictive. And so there's so yeah. many things going against people nowadays that really wasn't the case, um, you know, 20 years ago, even fentanyl now. Yeah. It's like, so like, it's just it's it's wild to see how the times change, and then with that, you can see the the increase in the uh, the deaths. But I'm really glad you're able to speak. How did that feel for you? Was this one of the first times speaking to a, a group of people about the loss? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I I speak as part of my work, but actually talking to bereaved people, a bereaved group explicitly, yeah, it was the first time. I mean, you might you might have been really glad, but I'll tell you, it was it was a nightmare. They really didn't like what they were hearing, and they were really angry and upset. I, it didn't it didn't end well. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm sorry I'm to hear that. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you gotta laugh yeah. at it too, because it's like there's nothing you can do to make them better, right? There's not like there's not a joke you could tell to make the whole crowd laugh, right? Like it's just like. They're mourning and they're no, coming. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was trained in, in the sort of towards the end of psychoanalysis, really. So there's still a bit of Freudian thinking in me, which I'm quite grateful for. And um, one of, one of the, the, the bits of Freud that's really lasted is a, is a system he, he developed with his daughter, Anna, called defense mechanisms. And, and he's, together they said something very profound, which is... Uh, I found it to be always true, which is whatever feeling you're left with after you've departed from somebody, left the company of somebody, you know, when you leave the room, whatever feeling you're left with is the feeling that they wanted you to take with you. And uh, it's a gift from them, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I left the room of this, this, these um, parents who are, most of whom were bereaved by suicide, I felt like I was to blame. And I thought, ah, oh, that's the feeling they don't want. They don't want the blame. And, um, and so um, to an extent, I was like a scapegoat or, or, you know, shooting the messenger or something like that. And that's okay because although it meant I, I had two or three bad days afterwards where it sort of, the negativity kind of reverberated through me. I could feel it in my bones. I... Um, 
I got over it because I worked it out. I worked out what was going on, what the, what the dynamic was, as we say in the trade, the psychodynamic, you know, what what was happening at a, at a psychic level or a, yeah, an unspoken level. So, yeah, those people are, honestly, I, they'd be and I are so grateful that Jack wasn't murdered or he, or he didn't take his own life because it's a different level of pain that the parents have to go through, I think. It's, it's yeah, it's 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 worse, <laughs> and I thought it was terrible when Jack got killed on the roads. But having been around and met those people, like what they what they're experiencing is worse. Yeah, it's uh, I've talked to a bunch of them, and I've done talks too, and it's amazing. Yeah. It's it's they it's amazing the dreams they can have. Um, just I'll just shortly talk about that in the sense that sometimes their main question is the why. And in the dreams, sometimes you get those answers, which can really provide them great relief as they move forward in their grief. But I'm guessing right. with even with a lot of my research, a lot of the dreams people are having are negative um, after suicide just because of the trauma that goes with that. And like, yes. so and that's a hard thing. So like when you're awake, you're suffering, but also when you're sleeping, you're also suffering. And so yes. it's just like a no win situation for them. So hopefully one one day we can figure out a way to incubate these people to have a positive dream of their loved ones <laughs> in some way in the future um but i do want to actually talk about your book because i think it's very interesting on that you even wrote this book so what when did this happen because you're grieving for a long time and when did you say you know yeah. what i want to know more about death <laughs> because i didn't see enough of it yet <laughs> yeah well the thing is and I'm not the only person who goes through this. I just wanted to consume everything I could about tragedy and death. So I'd, I'd watch tragic movies. Uh, if there was a, a, a sort of a murder or, or a, you know, a young death on, on, on being reported on on the TV, I'd watch it, you know, avidly. I, I might even write to complete strangers who've been bereaved saying, like, I just saw you on, on the telly or I just heard about you on the radio and I just want to say how sorry I am. Because I just, I was just sort of surrounded and, and fixated by it, maybe in an unhealthy way, I don't know. But one thing I really wanted was a book that was going to explain some of this stuff and make me feel easier. And uh, this, I couldn't find it. I mean, the nearest I could get to it were um, sort of accounts of near-death experiences. But these were nearly all from um, the USA. And it's a, it's a very different culture, America, to, um, to the UK culture. Canadian culture is more similar to the UK, I've got to tell you, in my experience. But with America, there's a tremendous amount of religiosity there's a tremendous amount of um of, of sort of christian overlay to the stories that people tell to the point where they relate everything directly to god's will and the teachings of jesus christ and i was brought up by christians and that sort of stuff makes me feel slightly uneasy makes me feel a bit sick really or queasy i can't I, i'm not going back to religion i, was, I, I you know I'm, I'm an atheist so what I wanted was a book that that had a spiritual dimension, but was good for atheists. So uh, so that's what I did. I did a sort of atheist good book. And so that's why I called it the English Book of the Dead, because 
the Tibetans have got one and the Egyptians had their books of the dead. And I think we need, we're in an age now, a secular age in the West and certainly in the UK where most people don't have a religion. They don't really see the point. They can't, they can't visualize a guy up in the clouds throwing thunderbolts down, or, you know, waving his beard around. They just can't see it. And so we have, we're on our own. And if we're on our own, you know, what does that mean? And, and, and if we're on our own, um, what are we? And what, what is, what is life? So, because, because I, I came to this conclusion, you know, I, dead, dead is dead. Yeah. When you're dead, you're dead. I'm perfectly happy with that. But then I, then I thought, well, it doesn't tell me anything because when you're alive, you're alive. It doesn't tell you what life is, that statement. So the statement, when you're dead, you're dead, doesn't tell you what death is. You know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a negative proof. It's a negative argument. So I thought, well, okay, so if, 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 I, if death is the absence of life, what's life? So I started to investigate that through reading up on the life sciences, biochemistry, and physics, uh, and then I moved from that to trying to work out. Wait, hold what on. <laughs> how did you answer that? Hold on. So, how did you answer the question of what is life? Well, I tell you, I, I tell you, it was difficult for me because I didn't have a, too much schooling. I wasn't very keen school attendee, and I, my, I certainly uh, missed out on physics and chemistry. In fact, they wouldn't put me in for the standard qualification for school kids because I just hadn't at school enough so i uh i had to sort of self-educate in that area so i spent a lot of time on youtube <laughs> sort of attending uh, kiddie school classes to try and get the basics of chemistry biochemistry fortunately i've got a biochemist in the family and my my daughter's husband's a biochemist so i could pick his brains a little and I started to educate myself about quantum physics, which took forever, I've got to tell you. And you can only do it to a very sort of shallow extent if you don't have degree level mathematics. And, and there's no way I'm going to get that because my brain just doesn't work that way. So I've had to, uh, I've had to learn narrative quantum physics, which isn't the same at all. It, it doesn't really exist as a term, but what, I'm, what I mean by that is quantum physics as expressed in words rather than numbers and symbols mm. and if you just if you work it out by words the true quantum physicists will say oh yeah that's that's not true quantum physics you know you you, you can't get to a level of describing describing subatomic phenomena just through, just through 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 um through a lexicon you can't do it you, you you can only do it through numbers so unfortunately i only understand it to a certain extent but i do understand it to that extent it took a long while and what i drew from that is that, uh, and this is very difficult to explain, <laughs> but, um, what, what I drew from that is there are two phenomena that seem to be absolutely essential to life, but seem to be almost impossible. Um, the first one is superpositioning, which basically means that a subatomic particle or wave, depending on how you view it, can be in several locations at the same time. Now, in the case of an electron, this is being exploited uh, by companies like IBM and Google to build to build a super quantum computer. If you can do it, you can exploit superpositioning. It means your electrons all over the place, so it can do millions of calculations at the same time instead of just the one or you know the binary one and zero we've got at the moment. So 
quantum computing, if it ever works, will prove zero, will, will prove superpositioning. And what that means is we're essentially made, made up of atoms that can be in several states at the same time and can be in several, almost several locations in the same time. Now, that explains, for instance, how people in different towns can have the same dream on the same night. Uh, the next thing, which is a lie to it, I'll keep on talking even though it's probably meaning nothing as I get you these words. Uh, the next thing, a phenomenon called entanglement. You've probably heard of this. And the notion here is the experiment proves this, although it makes no sense at all, is that you can have two quantum particles, in other words, two subatomic particles. You can separate them, you can have them at different ends of a country, and this has been done, you know, they've been, they've been separated by several hundred kilometers. And as soon as you do one thing to one particle, one of the one of the particles, the other one will become aware of it and will respond in a way that you can absolutely predict, even though it has no way of, of physically knowing that its partner has been in some way interfered with, say it's been passed through an electromagnet or something like that. So what this means is, that even though things are physically very, very separate, they still are well able to communicate with each other. And, and we don't know how. We think it starts through a thing called non-local space. And non-local space is a place that doesn't really exist in, in a three or four dimension world. It has to be an extra dimension. And a lot of physicists are quite happy now that non-local space exists. Uh, in other words, there's another dimension. And my feeling is that this could be right, this could be wrong. I don't care if it's wrong, really. It's just where I've, where reading is, uh, is, and YouTube has led me. My feeling is that, say, for instance, identical twins who can have the same thought in separate towns or come up with the same song or same new melody or have the same dream in separate towns on the same night and the dead who come to us in grief dreams they come to us via non-local space there can be a non-local space where the living and the dead could actually communicate but there certainly seems to be a non-local space where the living communicate so uh i'm it, w it would be consistent with the stories that people have told me because i interviewed people who would had near-death experiences and their experiences were so profound that they were left in no doubt that they'd been somewhere. They'd been somewhere other, somewhere else. You know, was, when, when you're in the room and you're listening to, you're with, with that person, you're looking in their eyes and they're telling you the truth, you kind of, you, you, you kind of believe them, you know, <laughs> you believe them. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I think this is all very interesting. I think like that type of information gathering, knowledge and writing a book about that, that's scientific inquiry, essentially. Yeah. Because look, at the end of the day, nobody's come back from the dead and told us what it's about in the situation. We don't get information from, you know, the other side. So we're all kind of, in a way, guessing. So, you know, I was, yeah. I was thinking about this thought the other day. I'm like, the most dangerous person is a person who's 100% sure of themselves or 100% <laughs> sure, <of>, 100% <laughs> sure of everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. There's so much vagueness and kind of ideas and, and frameworks that we're using and kind of supporting, but 
science tells you you should always go back and question a lot of these things because yes. again, we're not I'm not knocking any type of framework or perspective. You know, I myself come from a Christian family. I understand the importance of having frameworks and perspectives. But yeah. with that said, everybody has a unique and different one and it's okay to kind of delve into the world of the, the magical side of things because what you're talking about is actually real science happening and yeah. we're we have we're experiencing now we're going through the progression and we hopefully in our lifetime we can see the real ramifications of some of the science perfect example is that movie interstellar yeah. you know where where they're talking about going oh, into oh beautiful movie i'm not going to give away too much but they actually talk oh, about yeah. the fourth dimension they talk about oh, okay. an air an area in that that's not in our you know knock on knock on table kind of like life or not in another yeah. dimension it's an area we can't necessarily see in whatever and and movies always reflect real life and and these movies and stuff everything's coming out ai and people you know movies about yeah, you know yeah. cyborgs and whatever but the truth is that we're all collectively as a planet trying to understand all these concepts including death and that's where yeah. books like yours are important because you know, like I read in the bio, you're also looking back. You're looking anthropo anthropologically and saying, okay, well, how do we look at death in the past? And and that, I think, is the best thing. Is like, well, yeah. how do we look at it? And that's a scientific approach. What what are the ideas, yeah. concepts that we've had? Let's retest them. And, and let's let's start to try to make sense of all this. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I do go all the way back in the book. I go back to... Uh, sort of recorded history and before. So we've got archaeological evidence in this country uh, that goes back about 7,000 years from um, from what we call burial mounds. They're fascinating places. Uh, they're like uh, prototype um, pyramids, mm. but much shorter and squatter, but they've got chambers inside them and they were there for sacred burial purposes. And one of the best in the country is very nearby to here. And I I find it very comforting just to go inside that place. You can you just go, there's, there's not even a fence around it. You can just walk inside. You can just walk inside this chamber and and you're underground and you're in this place that's 7,000 years old. It's one of the oldest buildings in Europe. And uh, and you can go there any time, night or day, and just hang out <laughs> because nobody's <laughs> interested in it. <laughs> Have a date, you know, a little lunch date. <laughs> yeah. Bring a friend to have a party there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's curious that something so so precious to me would have no value to to um, modern England, but it's 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 really not important to the English. The English aren't very interested in history. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, well, we've kind of we've kind of moved on, right? Like we've 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 evolved, and we we talked to. Um... Mm. Yes, you got it. This guy knows me. We talked to Kevin Toulis, and he was he's an, he's um, he's Irish. Oh, yeah? And talked a lot about the Irish wake and whatnot. So, uh, yeah. that, and that kind of brings, he brought a great point. Like, you know, we've shifted because the society has shifted into having deaths and, and taking care of people into hospitals. It's very clinical yeah. now, probably because of hygiene, a right. lot, lot, of, lot of situations and reasons. But then you got to go yeah. back and say, why did these people find it that important? What is it in death that, that, that makes people build mounds and monuments and mausoleums mm -hmm. and whatever but like some of these structures yeah. we have them in north america and canada a lot too some of these mounds and whatnot what why was it so Brilliant. important for these people to have that type of critical kind of end of life 
whatever ceremony yeah. or, or thing. And that's, you know, I think, you know, that's a question. And I, and that's really cool that you, you get to explore these things and really um, dig up these topics yeah. that we're kind of, we take for granted now, you know, I'll, let me go to the hospital mm -hmm. and, you know, my grandma's going to die and whatever. And now, now the pallbearers are going to take her from the a, place A to B and all this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm going to jump a bit now. Um, Sean, sorry about this, but it's, it's well, the thought occurs to me. Um, there's, there's a guy in this country, he's a very old guy called Peter Fenwick. And he's been, um, he's one of the first guys to uh, investigate near-death experiences. And he interviewed over 300 people, wrote a very fine book. And uh, he's, he's, he's still involved in the field, even though he's retired from medicine. And he's, um, he's, he's one of the things he uncovered was that as people get closer and closer to death, they're more likely to have dreams where they're visited, visited by dead ancestors or dead friends sometimes visited by benign strangers. And these visitors say to them, well, you know, it's coming to the end now. And, uh, and, and you sort of say, yeah, in your dream. And they say, look, don't worry. You know, it's all going to be all right. And we're going to come and collect you. You know, we're not, you're not going to be dying on your own. You know, we're going to be ready for you over this side. And actually, we're, we're thinking Thursday at four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter Fenwick said quite often it is Thursday at four o'clock. They're bang on, you know what I mean? They come and get them. So you, even if you've got visitors, suddenly they go, oh, he just closed his eyes and he was gone. And uh, so Peter Fenwick says that generally it's, it's, it's from about four weeks onwards, you know, towards countdown that these, these dreams start to happen. Now, I've got a very good friend um, called, called Margaret. Um, Marge, we call her, and she lives in in London. And a couple of years ago, she she got stage four cancer, and and so she's dying. Yeah, so we go down to see her, and she said, "I've got to tell you, I've had a dream about Jack." Now she's hardly met Jack in her life, you know, because she's we lived in different towns, and there were quite quite a few years where I didn't see Marge a lot. Of Marge, so all the time Jack was growing up, she, she never really knew him. Uh, she knew him as a little boy, but. He came to her in a dream, and it was, I think it was adult Jack, you know, but she knew who it was straight away. And he, he said to her, don't worry, um, don't worry about Chris, that's her husband, you know. Chris is going to be okay. And Debbie and Dave, they're doing all right now. They're okay now. This is, you know, after several years of grief, yeah. And, uh, and she, said, she said, oh, I really, I really needed to tell you this. And... Uh, and I said, well, he's right. Yeah, we are doing okay now, actually. You know, compared to how we were, we're, we, you know, we're mending. And uh, and Marge only lived um, 10 more days. She died. And so it was absolute textbook Peter Fenwick dream. You know, it was, it was very true. And moreover, Jack was right. Her husband, Chris, he went through a rough phase. But um, after about 12 months, he really... He was quite a bit stronger, and he's he's doing okay. So we're all doing okay, and Jack was right, and 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 Marge was dying. So, so that's why Jack turned up. We talked about religion and beliefs. Yeah, I've got I've got nothing against religion. It's just when they start saying, "Well, my God's right, so your God's wrong," and then that's where all the trouble kicks off, isn't it? So uh, yeah, so so I suppose I suppose I was being 
being dishonest on this, I've got nothing against religion. I do have one thing against it, which is what you said about how dangerous people can be when they absolutely believe one thing because they have to be- disbelieve everything else. So I think I'm perfectly prepared to believe that Jack really came to her in a dream. Wow. But I'm not I'm not going to build a religion around it. I'm not going to make it an article of faith. If someone say, well, that's because, you know, um, Marge knew that you had a son called Jack who died and, and a dream, uh, to, to calm herself, soothe herself, you know, because she knew that she, the end was near, that she cooked the whole thing up in some some dark fantasy dream. I'm I'm prepared to believe that too. I think I think you should be prepared to believe anything, you know, within reason. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm never going to be prepared to believe the moon's made of cheese. You know, there's too much evidence to the contrary. But I have. <laughs> but it's, there are quite a few things that I would never have considered. You know, because I, I was I was a lot more unbelieving as a younger bloke, and I think maybe Shakespeare found this as well. As you get older you tend to believe in the fantastic a bit more. <laughs> Interesting. So his last play is very fantastic, or The Tempest, and you can tell it's a man who's coming to the end, really. <laughs> I think, too, when it comes to religion, what's interesting is really it's about what you just talked about in your book, about life and death. Like, every religion, that's what it's talking about, life. Yeah. Why, why we're here, and then what happens when we die. And it's just like people have different interpretations of that. And so I think it's, you're right, I think it's very interesting um, the topic itself, I think it's important to write on and to think about differently. When you, now it's all said and done, you wrote the book. What yeah. else, has that helped you in processing or sitting with um, life itself and also loss, like even the impending loss of your of your wife? Yeah, researching, researching the book and yeah, writing the um the case studies about other people, yeah, that definitely helped me. Writing about about Elizabeth and about Jack in the book was just was just horrible. Just I just hated every every word as I was typing. I, it, it, it just hurt me a lot, and I I didn't find that therapeutic. I don't really believe in catharsis that much, but as as to finding you know what what's mysterious and wonderful about life through the research, I, 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 I definitely have, have felt some comfort. Yeah, yeah, that's the word, comfort. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. Because I wrote the book for, for me six weeks into, into grief, really. It's, it's for the me that was, was around nine years ago. And so, so my hope is that it'll be for the, the people who are at that stage now. The book will help them, you know. It's for the newly bereaved. It's, it's, not, it's not for the everyday reader, I don't think unless they're kind of quirky. (laughs) (laughs) Unless they're they're like us, who are... Unless they're like us, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) like they inquire and, you know, know, really, really absorb these topics because they are heavy, but I think if you think about them, if you dwell on them more, you know, you start to really... For me, I think I, I feel compassion for people more, and especially if I talk to a griever or someone who's gone through death and loss, I feel compassion yeah. for just fellow humanity. Like, if we lived in like villages of a hundred people, and maybe yeah. there were some of them who are Christians, some of them who are, let's say, Hindu or Muslim or whatever, and you maybe sure. some a- atheists, you know, sprinkled in and whatnot. 
But like, yeah, we, I think we'd, we deal with issues a lot differently. I feel like we'd have more conversations, you know, we, we'd be more, more interested in let's, let's find out where we're similar and we have common ground rather than, well, you're, you're on team X and I don't really jive with that. So we're going to separate right. ourselves. And I think right. like, yeah, we can't go back to those type of lifestyles because, you know, population is crazy these days, especially in England. It's so crazy there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but, but at the same time, you could do that with the people around you. You could do it at work. You could do it with your neighbors. You could do it with family members yeah. and having a, a level of compassion and understanding that, hey, not everybody shares maybe the same framework that I share or, or yeah, you know, looks at the world the same way I do. But yeah, take death, for example. You know, no one's for sure seen the end. So yeah, I think it's great and it stimulates conversation. If you, you know, people ask questions or say, hey, how does your religion or how do you view death or how, do, how does under your religion's framework, how do you look at this? Mm. And then also, you mm. know, have those talks and talk about it. You know, we, we really don't have conversations anymore. I think they have a word for that, Sean. It's Let's called a death cafe. There you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's the crazy thing. Isn't that the crazy thing that we're creating spaces in today's day and age to have those conversations because we normally don't? I mean, yeah, that's, I'm all have... for it and it's great. And we're going to start this new podcast. We'll talk about that later. But it's, it's, it's at the same time amazing, you know? Well, maybe that's what the podcast does too. You know, it's a place. The podcast is almost a place, isn't it? Yeah. Where conversations can be had and ideas can be can be developed and floated yeah I, so so yeah we're recreating the village all the time i suppose mm, I like um that. you know getting back to the nitty-gritty i think we need to go back to basics you know technology might not take mm -hmm. us where we need to go now but back to the very simple idea of you know talking to that person who lives next door to you and, you know, if especially yeah. if, you know, there's tension or something or you never talk. I have a neighbor in the back. I've never talked to this person. Right. I see them all the time. And someday yeah. <laughs> it's too awkward now because we have both of us. Have yeah, do it tomorrow. You got to do it now. You you <laughs> I got to do, do it tomorrow. now. Now that I've mentioned <laughs> it on the podcast, I'm going to wave at this, this dude and see what's up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you what is uh responsibly because i'm not supposed to swear on this show no doubt i'll be delighted <laughs> well we don't know do we yeah it's, it's it's a way of getting rid of i suppose um dangerous fantasies about one another i guess that's what you're talking about yeah and at the end of the day i'm sure that person is is got some whatever ideas preventing them from saying hi to me and i'm i've got some preventing me from saying hi to them and and it's just a matter yeah. of like well let's shed those kind of biases and kind of uh assumptions yeah. about each other at the end of the day we live next to each other you know it's okay to it's okay it's okay to set up a rapport you know mm. all right so for our last question of the podcast we always like to ask yeah what dream if you could have one tonight would you want uh -huh. of someone who's died Oh, yes, I've heard this question and I haven't given it any thought at all. You know, I, um, I just, uh, I, I just want to, and, and in a way I've already had it, but I just, I just want to see Jack looking, looking happy, you know, when the happiest I've known him really is when he's, when he was just wearing a dressing gown and pajamas and, and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and he's eating 
potato <laughs> chips or something, <laughs> watching TV. As you know, you know, he used to, he used to like bad TV. If there was a show that was really bad, he'd just love watching it and laugh at it. Or there's a really cheesy movie, he'd, he'd, you know, those 80s movies he'd love. Hmm. I like that. No, it's it's a good. So it's one of those memories you have you want to sort of experience again. And I'm actually really curious, would you want to be able to smell him in the dream? You could smell those potato chip off his fingers. Share those, yeah. And and I and I think we've watched Back to the Future because that's his favorite film. The first one. Oh, that's and a Groundhog. classic. And Groundhog Day, that's probably uh, his second favorite. <laughs> Bill Murray, and a little bit of Bill Murray going on. <laughs> Bill Murray, absolutely, yeah. He loved all that stuff. He said uh, he said he hoped time travel would never get invented because somebody might go back in time and stop Back to the Future being made. It should be a terrible thing. So he, yeah, yeah, I'd watch, uh, yeah, I'd watch Back to the Future with him, and, and we'd, we'd recite the dialogue because we know what's coming next, and and laugh. I think that that would be the dream. Yeah, we laughed. We laughed a lot. We, yeah, I mean, the laughter stopped uh, to a large extent, but also. And I found this, I don't know whether you guys have found the same, that actually you can you can still laugh through the tears with with grief. It's 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 a depression where you, you still have a sense of humour. It's a bizarre thing. So you're Yeah. You're hurting like hell, but you know, there's some stupid comedy thing or somebody says something comes up with a one liner and you know, you can still laugh. It's curious. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, uh, that's life. And, you know, it's okay to, to, to kind of let humor enter in, even in, in your darkest days. It's one of the reasons yeah. why we never shied away from telling jokes or laughing on the podcast. Because, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, we wanted to show people that there's another side. You know, we used to, when we first started, we used to tell people what we do. Oh, we got a podcast on grief and loss and dreams. And they say, "Wow, isn't that dark? Like, isn't that morbid? Like, how do, you, how do you guys keep talking about it?" And I'm like, "Well, if you listen to the podcast, we actually do laugh a lot." <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's isn't it amazing with even the dream that you want? It's kind of like as a parent to see your child happy, to see them yeah. content. It's That's less what, about yeah. you. It's less about you. It's not you're not asking for them to come tell you, you know, what the lottery numbers are for next week or whatever. <laughs> you want them, right? You want them to, you want to see him happy. And that's, that's yeah. a beautiful thing. And, and I love that because, you know, that's, that's what loving parents do is they, they carry, they, they worry when you're out at night, they, they feel better when yeah. you come back home. That's, that's what a parent is, you know? And so it's such a beautiful dream and I'm really, I hope you get to have that. Dave, this has yeah, been a fantastic true. conversation. Um, could yeah. you actually shoot out your website and where people can find the book? It's www.englishbookofthedead.com. So just English Book of the Dead. If you search on that, all one word. I know it's not all one word, but that's how it is on the website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think people will find it. I found it pretty easily. So I hope uh, people can uh, go check that out, especially if you found some of the stuff uh, Dave was talking about interesting, as I did. Um, yeah, I, I love hearing a different perspective because sometimes in the grief world you get one perspective which is maybe a, a person's opinion about what the grief they went to or maybe you get the academic side where it talks about what's going on but what you've done is kind of extrapolated various ideas and and kind of give us something to think about which i think is uh really yeah cool. thank you 
Well, it, on the website, there are, um, there's a sample chapter and there's also other sample, other sort of extracts from the book. So people can get a flavour of it if they haven't already. And um, any money we make from the book goes to uh, a, a bereavement charity called Compassionate Friends. And um, it's, it's going all right. It's going all right. Well, so, that's fantastic. Uh, so yeah, that's yeah. So, so hopefully we'll put some good back, you know, where there's been... Well, I think you already did. You're uh, you're living and you're laughing, and so at the end of the day, yeah. that puts that puts <laughs> a lot of people around you in a better spirit. So, uh, good for you for doing the work and working with that grief. And thanks, and, Joshua. Well, no, that's yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. All right, Dave. Yeah. Uh, so people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams and at the Grief Dreams podcast. And as always, we love to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.